Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with Canada's new climate change plan. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiling that plan yesterday. It outlines how Canada will cut emissions of greenhouse gases by 45% by the year 2030. Now, don't worry, we've missed every target so far. This time, though, Trudeau says, this time it's definite. They're definitely going to cut these emissions now. Have a listen to what Trudeau had to say in Vancouver yesterday. It cannot be business as usual when devastating floods wash out highways and farms. It cannot be business as usual when communities are destroyed by wildfires. Lives and livelihoods are on the line. Justin Trudeau speaking in Vancouver yesterday. Let's discuss this now. we got an awesome panel for you. Cody Battershill is the founder of Canada Action. It's a pro-resource development group in Alberta. Hey, Cody. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here again. Dr. Tim Takero, he's a health sciences professor at Simon Fraser University. Uh, he's an environmental activist. He's opposed to pipeline development in B.C. Tim, thanks for coming on once again. Great to be here again, Mike. Okay, guys, thank you to both of you being here. I appreciate, always appreciate having both sides of this on. Tim, let me go to you first. What did you think of the plan outlined by Trudeau yesterday? Well, I think you uh, sort of summed up my uh, sentiments precisely when you did the intro there, Mike. Um, it's great uh, to hear the government um, talking uh, good talk about emissions reductions. Um, it remains to be seen what they will actually do, because as you point out, um, the government has never met a climate target it's set. <laughs> and does this, do you have any confidence that they'll do it this time? Well, I don't unless um, they stop building new fossil energy infrastructure. All right. The way, the way you reduce reductions is to turn the ship and... You can talk a lot about um, having other sectors do uh, their heavy lifting, but again, the oil and gas sector gets off easier than every other sector in the economy, and um, we can't be building new pipelines when we're trying to go the other direction. Okay, I have a feeling Cody's going to disagree with you on that. Cody Battershill, your thoughts? Well, Canada has already been a leader in, <clears throat> excuse me, in reducing emissions, and we're leading in carbon pricing. We're leading in collaboration and innovation, and the industry doesn't get any recognition. The industry is Canadians, it's women and men from across the country. We all, as Canadians, benefit over a half trillion dollars generated for government since the year 2000. We all use oil and gas to stay alive right now, and there's no current technological solution to just flip a switch. If we do not build pipelines, other countries benefit who have higher emissions. That's why opposing Trans Mountain and opposing LNG development is incredibly, incredibly wrong, both for the, all of the Indigenous communities who are very much in favour of those projects and okay. for our commitment to our partners and allies around the world and having the biggest possible environmental impact. That means more Canadian energy. 
Okay, Trudeau was asked yesterday, how is the oil and gas sector in particular supposed to achieve these aggressive emission reduction targets here over a very short time period without shutting down production of oil and gas in the country? And here's what he had to say. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. Trudeau here yesterday. We have spoken uh, extensively with leaders in the oil and gas sector who actually themselves recognize the need to get to net zero by 50. The oil and gas sector has laid that out. These are plans that are consistent with that objective that they have themselves laid out. Okay, so uh, Cody Trudeau saying there that the oil and gas sector that that you're, you are a supporter of, this is, this is all the stuff that you guys want. You guys have been asking for this, and he's only doing what you guys want. Is that correct? There are a lot of great plans, innovation for net zero and for continued emissions reduction. Singling out the industry as, as some sort of evil or some sort of laggard is just not the case. And the very same people opposing Canadian oil and gas and asking for the government to do even more on emissions reductions are the same people opposing carbon capture and opposing LNG development, which would reduce global emissions. It does not make sense. We all need to work together. Okay, Dr. Tim Takara, what do you say to that? Well, there are a couple of um, uh, good points here. <clears throat> One is uh, th- this notion that um, Canada is somehow leading um, is uh, really false. Um, if you look at uh, the Yale Environmental Performance Index, for example, uh, Canada is... Um, <clears throat> Uh, well behind. He's 20, 20th overall behind Norway and the United Kingdom. If you look just at uh, climate change component of that index, we're 37th. Uh, we're even behind the United States. So we have a long way to go. I certainly um, would love to see um, carbon capture and storage work. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it work, and we've been pouring billions of dollars into it without it working. Hey, Tim, let me ask you this. The, the point that Cody raised that, I mean, you're opposed to further fossil fuel development in the country and you've, you've been blocking pipelines and stuff like that. What do you say to Cody's argument that that is just going to make things worse? If we can't export, let's say, natural gas to Asia, that they'll just keep burning more coal over there. And that we're, we're be- the planet's better off with developing our... LNG uh, resources here. What do you say to that argument? I say that it's false that the rest of the world is, in fact, getting behind uh, the United Nations call for ending new fossil energy infrastructure and turning the ship around. Of course, it's not happening overnight. And of course, we will have a wind down period. But during a wind down period, you don't build new infrastructure. You don't make... uh, a plan for a new industry that has a 30 to 40 year lifespan at minimum when you're trying to go the other direction. Cody Battersill, what do you say to that? First and foremost, on that Yale index, Canada is a leader of the world's top oil reserve countries. So what Tim said is just not the whole story. Second, the whole world is building pipelines. Coal use is at an all-time high. Countries right now are scrambling to get off of Russian oil and gas. We have to help families, our allies, our partners around the world, we will have the lowest emission LNG on earth. 
that is something we can be proud of. And as Tim just said, we're not going to get off it overnight. If Tim wants to talk about shutting down oil and gas, then let's start protesting people driving cars. There's, there's all these other sources of use of oil and gas besides just these pipelines. The pipelines serve end demand and getting our responsibly produced oil and gas to global markets helps Canadian families. It helps the global climate. It helps us invest in this transition that will take multiple decades or generations. The U.S. will still be using oil and gas as their number one source of energy in 2050, according to the EIA. We need to be that supplier. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the Trudeau government's new climate action plan, 270 page plan introduced by the government yesterday to cut emissions aggressively here by 2030. This is a government's missed every emission target uh, since they've been in power. I, I don't see any reason to have any confidence that this target will be achieved either. Uh, Trudeau was asked about that yesterday, why they've missed all these targets. Here's what he had to say. Listen closely here. We lost 10 years on our path to 2030 because for 10 years, under the Harper Conservatives, nothing got done on fighting climate change, on reducing emissions from the oil and gas sector, on preparing for the future that everyone saw clearly was coming. Okay, so just in case you were wondering, it's actually it was Stephen Harper's fault. Cody Battershill and Dr. Tim Takara are my guests here. Let's go to your phone calls. Dan on Vancouver Island. Hey, Dan, go ahead. Mike, I have a question for the doctor, and let me have a follow-up, please. Doctor, do emissions respect borders? No, of course not, and uh, that's part of the problem, right? Um, If they they don't respect borders, so we could shut Canada down tomorrow, and China would fill that gap in five days, and all these weather events and floods and fires, they wouldn't stop. Is that correct? Well, you know, everyone in the world recognizes that we're in a climate emergency and uh, we are trying to keep the warming below 1.5 degrees. So everyone in the world has a responsibility to do what they can uh, to meet those uh, targets. And so really what Canada needs to do is uh, a 60% reduction by 2030, not uh, just 45 so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, this plan is a good start if we actually need it. Um, but if we're going to achieve what the world needs um, for future generations to have a livable planet, we need to get on it right away okay. and be more serious about our reductions. Okay, Dan, thank you for the call. C- Cody, what do, you, what do you say to that? Forget about a 45% reduction. Tim says we got to have a 60% reduction by 2030. Go ahead. If we're talking about the entire world and our biggest impact, it's developing LNG right now to replace, to, to, to displace and replace other forms of energy in Asia and around the world. And, and, and it's just mind-boggling that we hear about how emissions are global and then we want to potentially, all these people want to shut Canada down. It would just impoverish Canadians and do nothing for the global climate. We can reduce emissions as we have been. We can invest in wind and solar as we have been. I, I believe we're ninth in the world right now for wind. That's something we should be proud of. But guess what? We've also got the most responsibly produced oil and natural gas that benefits Indigenous communities and all Canadians okay. underneath okay. our feet. We all own it. We all benefit from it. We have to get that to the world to to also have the biggest climate impact. 
Back to the phone lines. Greg on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Greg. Go ahead. Hey, so we have 34 million people or 32 million people in Canada. Okay, we're not really making a dent in anything here. we got to work together as, as a, in the planet to get these other countries that are still burning coal and all these other fuels. Oil's not going anywhere. You look at California, EV. What do they have, 50% electronic car, uh, EV cars? How are they getting their power? They're getting it by coal power. So okay, it, Tim it doesn't t- make any sense. Tim Takaro, what do you say to that? Well, coal is uh, it's history. These are uh, last century fuels, and they're being wound down. Um, <clears throat> the idea that um, fracked methane, uh, so-called natural gas, is a transition fuel is last century. Uh, we have got to be serious about our fossil energy fuel use, and that includes all fossil energies, and all of them need to be wound down. And if we do not achieve the 1.5 degree increase in temperature, we'll be seeing thousands of people die every year in Canada, like we saw this past summer in British Columbia with 740 deaths from climate change. Okay, Cody, go ahead. I just got to jump in and say the reality of global energy demand disagrees with Tim. Coal usage is at an all-time high. While these groups, all these anti-pipeline groups have been blocking Energy East, Keystone, delaying Trans Mountain, LNG project, global oil and natural gas demand has never been higher. And this fear-mongering about the future, we can adapt, we can continue to reduce emissions responsibly, but it doesn't mean we just impoverish Canadians, we shut down Canadian industry so that other countries can benefit. We have to take a middle road approach Squeeze all in. of the above. Squeeze in one more call, call, James in Surrey. Please go quickly, James. Go ahead. All right. I just uh, want to say that oil's not going anywhere. Um, there are all these hypocrites that say it's uh, to shut everything down. They're sitting in their natural gas heated houses if they're driving an electric car. There's oil in the production holes and the plastics and the rubbers and everything. They're on their iPhones. There's oil in production of that. It's it's just a joke, all this okay. stuff. All right, James, just thank, creating thank, havoc. Thanks for the call. Tim, what do you say to him? You got uh, 20 seconds. I'll give you guys 20 seconds each here to wrap up. Go ahead, Tim. I, I would just say that, uh, of course, this is not happening overnight. And, of course, we will be using uh, petroleum products for uh, plastics and other <clears throat> other products. But... The idea that uh, we should just put this all on the individuals who are driving um, their trucks around or, or that is that is a part of it, and this plan is a part of it. Cody. But we have to be serious about changing Cody. the direction of our fossil okay. energy production. It's got to go down. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this real estate market out there. It's a jungle out there for sure. The B.C. government says they're trying to do more to protect real estate buyers, including this cooling off period that the government has introduced in a bill at the B.C. legislature. It'll allow buyers to back out 
of a deal to buy a property. Why is the government doing that? Well, they say that a lot of buyers are getting in over their head, agreeing to buy a property, usually over the asking price, and often with no conditions, like no home inspection. Now, have a listen to this. I spoke to BC Housing Minister David Eby about this on the show earlier this week, and he cited a famous example of a couple who bought a home and they found something unexpected after they moved in. Have a listen here. The idea is that uh, it gives them the opportunity to uh, do a proper inspection. I mean, there was a news story about a family that discovered a colony of bats living in the in the home after they purchased it. So, you know, it, it just gives uh, purchasers the chance to uh, do those inspections and due diligence. So, yeah, it was a famous case from a few years ago. The family bought a home and said there were bats, a colony of bats uh, living in the attic, which is uh, not a nice surprise. Maybe if you were the Munsters buying a house, you would have no problem with that, but other people might not like the bats flying around. Okay, it shows you the importance of a home inspection. Let's check in with Helen Barton now, Executive Director of the Home Inspectors Association of BC. Helen, thank you very much for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, that's very interesting work here in there. I remember when we bought a home many years ago, that was priority, high priority to get the place inspected. How many, how many real estate sales, like home sales, go through with an inspection? Like, do most people get an independent inspection of a property before they purchase? Traditionally, yes. In this market, no. Um, I've heard numbers up to 70% are buying without any wow. condition or having a home inspection. Gee. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard, and uh, I, I, I'm glad the government is looking at doing something, oh. um, but the importance is there. The government regulated the industry back in 2009 because they recognized the importance of, of home inspections for the buyer, and um, it's still as important, even, even more so in this type of market. Okay, I'm surprised that the estimates there are that high for uh, sales going through without conditions. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised given this market, but can you explain, like, why is it important to do an inspection of a property before you purchase? Because once you've bought the house and then move in and find the problems, um, you're in huge financial trouble. Back in 2016, we had that same type of real estate boom and home inspections again were skipped then and I had numerous numerous calls from people who had no recourse because they hadn't had an inspection and they moved into huge structural issues where houses had to be raised to repair to repair structure and foundations and uh, electrical issues mold in the attic things like that that they weren't aware of and the problem is, in this market, they're paying over, they're overextending themselves in most cases. So they don't have that additional fifty or hundred thousand dollars to start doing major repairs on the house. Yeah, we talked about a, a case earlier this week on the show about a family in Nanaimo that purchased a house, no inspection and found that the house was full of mold. And one of the purchasers was immunocompromised, very vulnerable to allergies, and, and could, couldn't be, basically couldn't tolerate being inside this house, the house making the guy sick. 
they didn't have a lot of options there to fix it other than spend tons and tons of money that they didn't have. Like, do you, what, what do you think of this cooling off period? So you think that's a good thing that buyers should be allowed to, to back out of the deal? You know, Mike, I, I, I'm never, never really for government interference in anything, but, but in this case, I think we have to protect the buyers somehow. And, um, that should be that should be our focus. Yeah. How they're going to do it, I have no idea. Um, you know, when I, they haven't given us any indication yet as as to what they're going to do. But certainly, a three day window between um, putting in an offer with a subject and being given two or three days to do their due diligence. It just brings us back to a normal market, a balanced market. You can always do that. Um, you know, most people do write subject offers yeah. for financing and for, for a home inspection. So that's all we want to see is to get back to a balanced market where everybody has that that right to do their due diligence. If they don't need to do it, if they have tons of money in the bank and they think they're going to get a better deal on the house or win the bid by going in non-subject and money isn't an issue to them, perhaps. But um, but for most people, it is, and they need that assurance that, that they know what they're buying. Right. Speaking to Helen Barton, Executive Director, Home Inspectors Association of BC. Helen, I'm sure you've seen or heard about your share of horror stories over the years, stuff that's been discovered in a property that maybe the buyer didn't know about. Um, what are some of the more common problems? Like you listed a few of the mold, like problems with the foundation, right? What are some of the other ones? Well, I have to say roofs. Roofs are a very mm. big issue. Um, the Home Inspectors Association also has an insurance plan and errors and emissions plan for its members. So, I'm very familiar with the problems that come up. Um, roofs seem to be a big one. Leaky roofs, yeah. mold in the attic, bad wiring, knob and tube, old knob and tube wiring, a lot of money having to be spent on that. Yeah. Poly B, poly, poly B is still very, very prevalent in homes. What is that, a type and of insulation or something? It's, or? No, it's a type oh. of piping. Oh, okay. um, and and a plumbing, a piping, and that that in some cases you can't get insurance for anymore. Yeah. Um, so your insurer, you you buy the house, you find out you've got poly B, and your insurer says, "Well, no, I'm not insuring it." Those are all the things you need to know. And replacement of poly B can be fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. Have you heard any crazy stuff like people move into a house and like the one that E B referenced there, there's a colony of bats in the attic? Is crazy stuff like that happen very often uh, or is that rare? That that story itself is rare. I've certainly heard of um infestations of, of uh rodents yeah. or carpenter ants. Um, you know, which which they would have no idea about until they until they actually moved in. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, badly done renovations or additions that may have been done unpermitted? Is that something that, that can be found in an inspection? That is absolutely right, and that yeah. part of a, a good inspector will let them know that yeah. that they should check for permits. Right. 
Right. Do you think that, like, a lot of people are looking at this cooling off period and wondering if it'll make any difference in terms of affordability in this housing market? I'm not sure it will. I mean, certainly it can protect some buyers, it sounds like. But it doesn't sound like it would do a whole lot for the affordability question in this market. And the other thing I'm wondering about is, do you think the government should make home inspections mandatory as part of a deal? Because that's been suggested, too. Well, you're going to be maybe surprised to hear me say this, but no, I don't think oh. they, they I don't think they should be mandatory. I don't think home inspections should be made mandatory any more than um, making it mandatory that um, no home owner can sell the house without a realtor. Oh. Um, I think some things have to be left up to the discretion of the of the buyer. And so I don't think they should be mandatory. Um, I've also heard that the the government is thinking of, um, or there's been talk of, making uh, a a seller's inspection mandatory. And unfortunately, that is coming back to haunt a lot of buyers. So a lot of people are pushing these pre-listing inspections, and you'll walk into a house and find those Sitting generally sitting on the kitchen counter where the buyer at the first viewing can kind of scan through it. Yeah. But it's, there's there's a lot to beware of in that because they have no idea when the inspection was done, if things have changed in the house since then. And we have to remember that inspection was done for the seller. Yeah. You need your own inspection. Okay. How much? How much is a home, how much does an inspection cost typically for uh, let's say a house? Generally, say a say a standard two thousand square foot house, you're probably looking in the five hundred to six hundred dollar okay. range. It, it goes up with the, and it's the best money you're going to spend. I really believe that yeah. with all the the um, liability put on a home inspector um, to do a good job, I think that is uh, that's low considering the prices you're paying yeah. and for the for the job, for the detailed job that you get. Um, okay. Helen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Have a good day. All right. Well, let's keep talking about this cooling off period that's been proposed by the B.C. government now with this red-hot real estate market. The government says they want to bring in greater protections for home buyers, including giving them the option to back out of a deal after, even after they've agreed to purchase a property. Now, a lot of unanswered questions about how this would work. How long would this cooling off period be? Like, would there be any penalty if you back out of a deal? Let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Sur Somerville, Professor of Real Estate Finance. He's at UBC. Hi, Sur. Thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this cooling off period? You know, what I'd say is it's something that I don't expect to have any effect on housing affordability. It might even make housing be a little bit more expensive. Uh, but it does have, I think, the benefit of addressing some of the stress buyers in hot markets feel where, you know, you, you get to see the house on Thursday and then you've got to put in an offer on Sunday. So, so I think there's some merit in it, but it really does matter how it's structured. And as you pointed out, we don't know any of the details. Yeah. How could it make housing more expensive? That appears to be the opposite direction we want to go. 
Well, you know, more put more in quotes here in the sense that, you know, if here, if you know you could back out of a deal, would that mean that you'd be willing to pay bid more or less? Uh, more, I suppose, right? Yeah. There, there, yeah. there you go. You just put yeah. the housing prices. But yeah. but again, you know, but there's a trade-off there because you've also lowered some of your uncertainty and risk. So it may, you know, prices might be, could be a little higher, but you would be getting the benefit um, of less yeah. uncertainty. Okay. Here's another one that's been flagged for me, and I'm, and I'm sure this has occurred to you as well, is like, if you have this kind of escape clause that you can just bail out of a, of an offer or an agreement, What's to stop people from just putting in multiple offers and bids all over the place? Here's what David Eby had to say to me about that. This is the BC housing minister. He was on Monday's show and he said, look, there could be, you'd have to build in some penalties here. So yeah, we'll give you a, we'll give you an escape clause. You can back out of the deal, but you might be penalized for doing it. Here's what he had to say. There are people who will try to game it. And so, you know, someone puts in five or 10 offers on different places just to see what comes through. Uh, and, and if they can get out with a cooling off period, then they'll, they'll do that. And so there does need to be some consequences for, uh, for costs that are incurred by the seller. Okay. So this is one of the unanswered questions here. There appears that the government will bring in some sort of penalty if you do exercise this escape clause. Sir, your thoughts? So I think it's really, really important, but, but you can see where the trade off is because the larger the penalty, the less the benefit of the cooling off period. So yeah. you're, you're, really in a, you're really in a bit of a push and pull between how much you're giving to the buyer because it's a zero-sum game because that's coming at the expense of the seller. I actually think the bigger worry is not the 10 offers kind of scenario, but it's more the situation where the market isn't quite as hot and therefore you make an offer to a seller and then you say afterwards, well, gee, I discovered all these problems and so we really need to to lower the price by thirty or forty thousand dollars or whatever, and it's a situation where that seller now feels pressure because you know it, it's costly to go back on the market or it's not a slam dunk that they're going to have twenty people showing up, and so you, you you don't even you don't even need to make an offer on ten properties to see where a buyer might be able to use this to pressure a seller. Yeah. I just spoke, just got a minute left here. I just spoke to the president of the BC Home Inspectors Association who said that she thinks a large percentage of deals, real estate deals are going through right now with, with no conditions, no, no home inspection. Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me because, you know, you're, you're in a, a catch 22 if you're a buyer in a hot market, which is, if you're going to be bidding on 10 homes before you get one, are you going to do 10 inspections before you, you right. bid? And, te- yeah. you know, 10, 10 inspections ends up costing a lot of money. And then you know that, that when there are multiple bids, there's a tendency to pick the no subject to offer. So, therefore, if you want to get the house, you're kind of forced into that. So, you know, I, I really do understand the motivation from the government side. But I think getting this right is, is somewhat delicate. I do applaud them for thinking about applying the policy different in different places in BC, because, you know, the hot market in the lower mainland, you know, that's not the Prince George market. And it is important to have that, that recognition. Professor Somerville, thanks for coming on. That's a pleasure. I appreciate it. Sir Somerville there from UBC. Let me know what you think today on the buzz line about this uh, cooling off period. Do you think it's a good idea? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the provincial mask mandate, which has now been largely dropped in British Columbia. It was a decision by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Yeah, so when you go into a grocery store or other indoor public spaces, 
no more mandatory masks. Now, I notice that a lot of people will still keep the mask on, but optional now, a lot of people choosing to take the mask off. How about back to school? Vancouver kids back in class this week after spring break. Yeah, the mask mandate gone in BC schools. So you don't have to mask up in schools anymore. Check this out, though. BC's Human Rights Commissioner saying she disagrees with this. She is calling on Dr. Bonnie Henry to bring the mask mandate back. Look look at this letter she's written to Dr. Henry here. She writes, quote, this is Kasseri Govender, by the way, BC's uh, Human Rights Commissioner. She writes to Dr. Bonnie Henry, quote, the hasty end to the mask mandate will have profoundly unequal effects across society. Some are more vulnerable than others to the virus, and public health policy must consider these impacts. She goes on to list, list marginalized groups, including people who are immunocompromised, seniors, indigenous and racialized people, people with disabilities, and low-income communities as all being disproportionately more vulnerable to the virus. Therefore, she wants the mask mandate to be brought back into in effect in British Columbia. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Clint Johnston. He's the president-elect of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Clint. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on today. So let me ask you about the situation in BC schools right now. In your experience this week, are most are most kids, students, staff taking the mask off or some of them keeping it on? What are you hearing? Well, we're hearing, uh, as you'd imagine, we're hearing a pretty wide variety of feedback. There's places where, you know, almost the entire class has their mask on, and then there's uh, other places where the majority of the, the students um, and staff, frankly, um, may not be wearing masks. So it's pretty it's pretty different where you are, where we are in B.C. Now, what are you hearing from your members, from teachers in B.C.? Are they happy that the mask mandate is gone, or do some of them sort of wish it was still there? Or? Well, I think, you know, obviously there's... 46,000 plus members, there's going to be some who are happy it's gone for sure. Um, but I think we also have heard a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of nervousness around the mask mandate leaving, and particularly the timing right after spring break. You've got um, people who've traveled coming back, and while we know there's an enforcement of masking uh, federally, you know, that can be difficult to ascertain who's traveled, who hasn't. So there's a lot of anxiety right now, frankly. Okay, let's have a listen to BC's Human Rights Commissioner on this point. She was a guest yesterday on the Jill Bennett Show, and here she is making the case for keeping masks on in schools. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. It's where we have to show up. You know, where our children either are going to get access to, to their right to education and their, their social needs met in schools, having to make that decision to pull them out of schools because there's no mask mandate, you know, that's not acceptable from a human rights perspective. Okay, Kasseri Govender there, BC's Independent Human Rights Commissioner, uh, not happy that the mask mandate is being dropped in BC, especially in schools. And you heard her make the point there, Clint, that it sounds like she's saying that some people or some parents may be pulling their kids out of school because there's no masking anymore. Are you hearing that? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, we don't necessarily hear as much uh, on the parent end of things, but... Um I can definitely understand that there would be some parents and students who would be very nervous and might need to not go into the school. Um, but it's interesting to me because what she's talking about echoes work we've been doing at the steering committee around COVID for a couple of years now and trying to get masks into schools. 
with that emphasis on the fact that students have to go to schools, that's how they access their education. So we need to make sure they're as safe as possible. Right, right. So the union did support the masking policy for a long time. Where do you guys stand on it now? Do you agree with the the mask mandate being dropped in schools at this point? Well, like I said, we thought it was a a little bit premature as well. Uh, And I say particularly around the timing, you know, when you've got everyone coming back after spring break, we know there was travel. Um, We would have liked to see it stay in place after spring break for at least some time, give everyone some time to gradually transition to that idea. Um, But it's interesting, as I said, to hear her discussing that access issue because it's something we've been talking about as well. Yeah, do you sort of see the point that she's raising? Like she says this is a human rights issue, that there are marginalized groups in our society who are more vulnerable to the virus than others, and it's their human rights that are being eroded here with no mask mandate. Do you agree with that? Well, we have great respect for um, the commissioner and and her perspective is well-informed. So, yeah, I I think it's hard to argue with that, honestly. I mean, masking, one of the things we've emphasized, and even in the last week as I've done interviews, I've emphasized is the decision on whether to wear a mask should be more broad than just yourself and your own safety feelings and comfort um, because masks are a layer that protects you and others around you. It's a community um, safety system. So I, I can't argue with her points, actually. You know, you've got people who are in very different situations, even if it's not the individual. There may be people in schools who go home to vulnerable family members, vulnerable friends, um, and we should be taking into account them. Speaking to Clint Johnston, president-elect of the BC Teachers Federation, about the mask mandate being dropped in BC and particularly in the school system. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like she's arguing like for almost like a permanent mask mask system. I mean, if you're going to say that we have to, everyone has to mask up because some people are more vulnerable to the virus than others. I mean, when does it ever end? It sounds like it would, she's arguing for a permanent masking. Doesn't it? Why? To be fair, I think you'd have to ask her if that's her intent. But um, I think there's a recognition that we're, you know, there's going to have to be a way we live with it in an endemic state. Um, I haven't heard anyone explicitly call for a permanent masking mandate in schools. And, uh, you know, we'd have to look at that if it came about. But um, I think there's definitely an argument for maintaining it longer to allow yeah. it to um, work more slowly through the community. Have you heard of any outbreaks of COVID in BC schools? Uh, no, we haven't had any brought to our attention yet, no. Yeah, yeah, because this is the frequent argument that Dr. Bonnie Henry will make is that the reason she's comfortable dropping the, ma- the mask mandate, particularly in schools, is she believes that she hasn't seen a lot of transmission of the virus in schools. Do you agree with that? Well, we, we would have a slightly different take on that from the information that our members have given to us over the course of the pandemic. You know, um, whether or not something was transmitted in school, the, the provincial health office had a way of determining that. But we've certainly seen it transmitted. And I think um, given that right now we're seeing in other jurisdictions and expect to see in ours probably a bit of a resurgence in COVID, I think that the timing of it again is less than ideal. Okay, so you would like to see the mask mandate back in place then? Uh, I don't think it would hurt. Yep. All right. All right. Clint, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Let's talk about the soaring price of gasoline now and the BC government's ICBC rebate, $110. That's how much you will receive from ICBC starting in May. It is a one-time rebate to help offset those high gas prices. Even if you drive an electric vehicle, 
you get the rebate. Now, why is that? They don't buy gas. Well, the government says it would be too complicated and time-consuming to send out rebates based on a vehicle's power supply. Better just better to just give it to everybody and get the money out the door quickly. That's what the government said. Now, if you do own an electric vehicle and you receive your $110 rebate from ICBC, which you should, the government says you should consider giving it to charity. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Give it to charity because, you know, you don't need the money uh, for high gas prices, you own an electric vehicle. So you should consider giving the money to charity. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Adam Olson, Green Party MLA in the BC legislature. This program is going to cost around 400 million bucks. Adam believes there's better things we could do with that money. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Adam, thanks for coming on. Very pleased to be here. And I think that you, you've framed the issue uh, quite well, Mike, as we uh, entered into this segment. Yeah, what do you think of this idea, these ICBC rebates? What's your take on it? Well, I think, you know, the, the government, uh, we witnessed uh, in question period after question period, uh, our colleagues uh, raising this, uh, the issue that is increasing gas prices. The, the, the Premier and the, and the BC NDP government have continually over the last five years uh, talked about, you know, using sloganeering to talk about making life more affordable for British Columbians. And, uh, in many of the key metrics for British Columbians, the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of transportation, life has not become more affordable, uh, despite what the government's uh, best intentions are. And, uh, you know, the, I think over the last couple of weeks or month or so, we've seen uh, tremendous increases in gas prices and, and people demanding relief. The government chose the ICBC route. They could have uh, chosen other routes, but uh, that's the route that they chose. I, I, I just think... It's ridiculous. We own uh, electric vehicles. Um, the, the idea of, of donating it to charity is, is ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah. Government also talked about, uh, you know, also talked about giving uh, giving money back or giving uh, rate rate payers back their money. Um, yeah. So you know, it's it's. Uh, I think um, it's a, it's a good way to kind of deflect. But uh, what does it do in the long run? Um, not much or closer to nothing. Okay, you think it's a hundred dollars? It's it's one hundred and ten bucks, which is not even a fill up for a lot of people right now with with the price of gas. Let me ask you about the sort of opportunity cost here of this program. So this is like a, close to four hundred million dollars. It will cost ICBC in rebates. That's a lot of money. You believe that there are better uses for that money? Like if it was up to you and you had four hundred million bucks to spend right now to make BC a better place? Like, what would you spend the money on instead? Well, I think, you know, if you just t- take a look in you know, where where the majority of your listenership is in the in the lower mainland, Mike, uh, at the same time as they were announcing the uh, this this $100 rebate for drivers, uh, TransLink was increasing the cost of, of transit. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's a, there is a good opportunity to... Uh, to help people who are in the process of making a decision. I'm one of those people, actually, uh, to make the decision to move uh, from even driving an EV to to uh, lowering our transportation costs overall, the insurance, the uh, cost of owning a, a vehicle, uh, by in, in making investments uh, investments in transit. And uh, so we see the, these two policies are very much at odds. We know that people will make the choice to move uh, from having their own uh, vehicle, the convenience of having a own vehicle, 
uh, to a, a transit system that increases frequency and, and reliability and convenience. And those are all investments that be, need to be made up front. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I, I think that the, the government had a missed opportunity. Uh, the cost of food uh, for a lot of uh, British Columbians is uh, getting increasingly out of reach. The cost of rent and mortgage, this has been one that, you know, your radio station and every you know, media outlet and everybody in British Columbia is talking about the, the cost of housing. And so yeah. now that we've got rent controls in place, uh, why not revisit the, uh, the, the rebate on, on um, the renter's rebate? So, right. uh, you know, I think that there are a number of ways that the government could have expended this, this money and they chose to uh, give it to everybody whether they needed it or not. Yeah, the, the B.C. renter's rebate was famously promised by Premier John Horgan, also famously undelivered. It would have been a $400 rebate to B.C. renters to help them. Government never came through on that. As for the price of food, you wrote on Twitter the other day, Adam, that the government could have considered a, a grocery rebate. How would that work? Well... I think the point that I was making on Twitter is that they, they made a choice. They made they, they make choices to uh, support drivers and, and the car culture and and uh, the the reality that British Columbians are facing is uh, affordability on a number of fronts. Uh, despite, like I said earlier, despite the government's best intention on making life more affordable, which has been their slogan and repeated over and over and over again, there are aspects in which you know I think. And disproportionately, uh, food is, is disproportionately impacting um, low-income uh, British Columbians uh, the most. I, I was raising the point on Twitter and uh, that uh, we need to be taking a look at opportunities to support British Columbians um, where they need it. The government chose to do it for drivers. Uh, why not support British Columbians for food? I, I think. I think one of the things that we learned from last fall, Mike, was that. You know, our, our our transportation network and food imports are tenuous at best uh, in this country, and we have a, a long way to go to uh, to shorten the supply chains on our food and our reliability on other jurisdictions. And so, you know, this is a much bigger policy area than I think the 240 characters of Twitter can can do do justice for. But I was just simply raising the point that um, you know the the premier said in, in question period the reason why they responded the way they responded with uh, the uh, the hundred dollar check to British Columbians for gas prices was because British Columbians were demanding it. Well, British Columbians are demanding a relief from their housing costs uh, for months, for years. Uh, same with food now. Right. Speaking of Green Party MLA Adam Olson, we're talking about the ICBC rebate to offset high gas prices. It's a close to four hundred million dollar program. Adam believes there are better uses for that money. You call this a a, a smoke machine you call it this is sort of a smoke and mirrors kind of rebate from icbc because you know on the one hand you've got the the carbon taxes going up in a couple of days here in british columbia uh presumably to counteract people from driving to discourage driving and to discourage fossil fuel use at the same time the government's saying well wait a minute we can't have gas prices go up too much because then we got to give you money back I mean, is it kind of a, like, how do you analyze that? Like, do you think this is, this ICBC rebate, do you think this is a government that didn't want to cut gas taxes? They didn't want to be seen cutting gas taxes 
So they they issue an ICBC rebate instead. Well, I, you know, I think that it was the the policy around uh, carbon taxes is a long term policy. It's it's to shift. It's to, it's a shift behavior over a long term. And so, you know, I think that in ensuring that the the overall uh, ensuring that we maintain uh, carbon taxes and 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 that long term policy, I think the government was looking for a short-term fix. They were getting hammered in question period day in and day out on this issue. Yeah. Um, they were scrambling around with no answers. They, they were, it was being pointed out regularly that the, that the premier promised a couple of years back to do something about rising gas prices, even before the most recent uh, steep incline of gas prices. And it was pointed out that the premier hadn't, uh, hadn't done anything about it, despite promising that he, that he was going to. So, this was a this was the the reality of, of I think the situation that we're facing right now is and and the 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 two policy areas that you've raised here uh, carbon taxes and then and then the four hundred dollar or the uh, four hundred million dollar rebate through ICBC, um, you know there one's a short term fix to try to to I think get some of the building pressure off of the government uh, to be a, you know appear to be doing something and and in some cases you know for 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 some British Columbians, hundred dollars will mean a, 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 a will mean something to them. It will mean a, a big uh, uh, boost to their income for this for that one time. Uh, however, when it comes to the long term policies of carbon taxes and moving away from yeah. uh, the internal combustion engine and fossil fuels as a as a power source, I think for for vehicles, I think um, we need to maintain those and and uh, continue sure. continue that. So, all right. Adam Olson, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Have okay. a great day.